New happy is exactly the opposite. It's essentially saying that we are all deeply interconnected, that when we care for one another and when we accept care from one another with the goal of contributing to happiness for everyone, we in turn become happy at the same time. Welcome to an all new season of Off the Gram, the show where we bring you straight into the trenches with us to help you live your best life, channel your inner girl boss, and navigate the ever changing landscapes of wellness and social media. Hey, gang. Hello. Heidi here. Our guest today is the founder of The New Happy, an organization dedicated to advancing the philosophy that individual happiness arises by creating happiness for the collective. Stephanie Harrison developed The New Happy philosophy during her graduate studies at the University of Pennsylvania, where she received a master's in applied positive psychology. As an expert in well-being and behavior change, Stephanie has been cited in publications such as Forbes and the Huffington Post and is a regular keynote speaker at companies and conferences. Stephanie's Instagram at New Happy Co. shares daily science-backed art with tools to help you find happiness and has exploded with over 440,000 followers. She's also an author, and her forthcoming book, The New Happy, will be out next year. Listen to the show if you are ready to say out with the old and in with the new happy. You want the hard-hitting science of happiness, but you need a translator, and you'd like to learn the simple ways to do your part to increase the collective well-being of the planet. Stephanie, welcome. We're so glad to have you here to talk about one of my favorite topics, the science of happiness. First of all, I need everyone who is listening right now to pause the podcast and follow your Instagram account at New Happy Co. As Fast Company so perfectly wrote, in an internet filled with countless memes and endless platitudes about self-care and mental wellness, Stephanie cuts through the noise with her artfully illustrated, scientifically backed visualizations. That's a hard word to say. About mindfulness, kindness, and the general mental framing to live a happier life. I have to say, I feel like I've had a mini therapy session when I scroll your gram. It is just brilliant. Can you tell us about the new happy? What is the new happy versus the old happy? And how are you redefining happiness? Oh, thank you so much. I'm so touched that you like it. Uh, really, I... I'm a better person when I your Instagram. Oh, that's that means so much. I mean, honestly, the fact that anyone thinks my weird little pictures are cool is still a total surprise to me. Uh, really, the, the new happy actually came out of my graduate work in positive psychology. And while I was studying for my master's degree at Penn, I realized that so much of the narrative that we've been told about happiness in our society is so completely wrong. And we actually have the science now to back up that it is so completely wrong. And that really motivated me to want to provide a, an organizing paradigm for people to understand these are the lessons that might not be serving you. These are the ones that have been shown by the research to actually help. And that's where this idea of the new happy came from, proposing a new definition of happiness, something that actually works and that isn't going to make us miserable the way so much of, so much of the lessons we've internalized over our lives really have ended up doing. Can you break that down for this? So like, what was some of that stinking thinking with the old happy versus the, the new thought behind what the work you're doing? Of course. So old happy is really about how I, as an individual, can achieve and consume and acquire my way to happiness. It's all about 
the grind. It's about achieving more and more and more past what you need. It's about acquiring as much as you can, about competing with other people, about viewing yourself as completely disconnected from those people. All of these things are absolute poison to our well-being and to our happiness. They're so harmful. And unfortunately, it's really the way our society has been set up. So unless we start to bring attention to that, we're going to have a really hard time seeing it because it's just the water that we've been swimming in for such a long time. And new happy is exactly the opposite. It's essentially saying that we are all deeply interconnected, that when we care for one another and when we accept care from one another with the goal of contributing to happiness for everyone, we in turn become happy at the same time. And it's about this sense of contribution, of authenticity, of purpose, and ultimately of compassion for everyone. I love that so much. And it's, it's so funny. This is Heidi. Hi. Um, <laughs> I'm a yoga expert and yoga teacher. And when I first started teaching, one of the ideas that was brought up was like, how can I help? Not like, mm. how can I become famous, Insta famous or whatever Instagram wasn't even around when I started, but you know what I mean? <laughs> like, how do I further myself? And like, nothing really switched until it was like, how can I help? Mm. And it's that idea of the collective and everything you said, the interconnectedness, like, it's all, how can I, the greater good yeah. instead of just like me, 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 which we, you know, hear a lot about with a lot of things. Yeah. So, so you're a scientist, you're presumably not a graphic designer, illustrator, <laughs> which is debatable. I mean, you can be more than one thing. <laughs> so how did you come up with the bright data visualizations for your content? And I mean, I know you said at the beginning, you sound very humble that like you're surprised, but why do you think they've gone viral? I think that, so really it, it stemmed out of me wanting to find a different way to communicate because I have always loved art. So ever since I was a kid, it was just something I loved to, I love to go to museums. I love to look at any form of art that there was. And as all of us know, art affects us differently than reading or being told something, right? We've all had that experience. And I started to wonder, was there a way to communicate these ideas that would connect in that similar perhaps less cognitive capacity, more at an emotional or intuitive or a felt sense. And that's really what led me to think, hey, why don't we try putting these into some sort of visual framework and developing a language around it? And I really just started to play around with these ideas. I took a lot of inspiration from, you know, past artists, modernism, graphic design, and started to figure out you know, hey, what color is this feeling? Or what does it look like when you're changing or when you're affecting somebody else? And all of a sudden, just starting to play around with those concepts, it became this real moment of joy in my own life. And people started, I think, connecting with it just because it was something different. And hopefully, I, I hope it gave them a little bit of a sense of you're not alone if you felt this way. You're you're not alone if you have felt completely overwhelmed by your emotions or that you're the only person going through this problem or any of these feelings that we so often feel. And really that's that's always been my my main goal, helping people feel a little bit less alone and recognize how connected we all are. So Stephanie, for someone who's not on your Instagram or doesn't have this visualization, they're listening. Can you kind of talk to us about what these illustrations of happiness look like and maybe what your first one was? 
Yeah. So basically, if you're not looking or you don't have the capacity to look, every illustration is on a white background and often has two to five shapes max in very bright colors, often primary colors, but also bright pinks, bright purples. And essentially, we often will show a shape that represents something. And then what happens after you change or you make make a choice or you do something different, how that shape evolves or represent what a feeling looks like or feels like to me and represents, uh, hey, this is this is something that you think about and here's another way to look at it. So using shapes to kind of break those things down. And we just use very simple shapes like circles and squares and triangles for the most part. And the one that really allowed me to solidify what I was trying to do, the first one, it was about August of 2020. And we were all still locked down. My partner has been very sick for a number of years. And so we were in a very, very high alert. And I hadn't left the house in months. I had no contact with anyone. He was in a very, very bad place with his health. And I personally was feeling a lot of despair. Just how is this going to end? How is this going to change? And I remember grabbing a piece of paper and drawing a big black circle and labeling it, this is what it feels like right now. Because it's how it felt. And I know a lot of us have had those moments in our lives. And then I thought, well, one of the core lessons from psychology is if you change the frame of reference that you're looking at something, then sometimes that changes the way that you actually are experiencing the event. And so then I moved to the right of the page and I drew the same circle, still black, still terrible, still all of that despair, but much, much, much smaller. And then another series of circles following it, all different colors. And I labeled it, this is how it'll feel someday. Because that moment in time was just a moment in time, as overwhelming and difficult as it felt to me. And there are plenty of other circles representing positive experiences, beautiful experiences, moments of joy and happiness. And they follow, they come afterwards, even in the hardest of times. And for me, that was a moment when I started to realize I can communicate things in some way and uh, one that I'll, I'll remember. Oh, Stephanie, that's so powerful. This is Jamie. Uh, thank you for that. I honestly, you know, I think happiness is so confusing. People just think like I'm happy or I'm sad and I, or, and I just need to, I just need to make myself happy or, or I'm just sad, but like, it's so nuanced. And when, and people who really understand it from a scientific and a psychological perspective, there are so many variances, you know, mm-hmm. our, we had a former co-host who's moved on to do different things in fashion, but she talked a lot about mood dressing and the power of color over your mood. And there's so many ways to affect the way that you perceive the world. Mm-hmm. And thank you for reminding us of that. So I have a question and I know you touched on kind of blatant materialism, consumerism, consumption, but what maybe is some other misinformation you've seen about happiness lately, maybe on social media or otherwise? And, and how is that maybe harming people? Mm, that's such a great question. I think it actually goes to your to your earlier point. It's so complicated. Happiness is such a complicated topic. I'm writing a book about all this. And when I was researching my book, I came across a journal article where one philosopher had gone through all of the existing research and had discovered that scientists and philosophers and religious thinkers and anyone who's remotely concerned with happiness 
they'd come up with over 200 different definitions of what happiness actually is. And there's, so like, there's broad disagreement, even at the highest level of some of these topics, which then of course, how are all of us just living our lives trying to get through every day? How are we supposed to figure that out for ourselves without a little bit of support and guidance? So I think the first piece of misinformation is that it's not complicated, right? Because you can say I'm happy as a mood, But having a happy mood isn't the same thing as having a happy life, Mm -hmm. right? You could have a life that's filled with many, many happy moods and get to the end of it and realize I'm actually not satisfied with the way that I live my life. And it's this tension between what do you do on a daily basis? How do you feel on a daily basis? And then also, where are you moving towards? And holding those two opposing things in your hands is a really complicated thing, something that really only each of us can figure out for ourselves. And I think so often we prioritize mood a lot in our culture, right? This will make me feel good right now. And I also want to invite all of us to consider the longer term impact of our actions, because what I've discovered, what many other researchers have found is that there are ways to feel really good in the moment and to create a really meaningful long-term life. They're, they're not at odds with one another if we're taking specific actions. And I think that really the, the core misconception that this stems around is that, you know, you have to, you have to change to be happy. You have to get something, you have to go somewhere. Something has to be different. And this sense of, lacking and not being enough is so pervasive in our world. And that is something that I find, I find devastating because it's just simply not true. We did a whole show on toxic positivity as well. Mm. Do you feel like that kind of, you know, don't worry, be happy thinking is, is another contributing factor? Yeah, of course. I, I saw the show that you did on that and I completely agree. I think that any, any form of trying to suppress emotions just backfires on you. You know, studies have found that if you suppress your emotions, it can lead to diseases, it can lead to mental health challenges. There's so many things that are associated with that. And any form of denying somebody else's pain ultimately just leads to more pain. And really, to me, it's something that you, you can't force somebody into happiness. You can't force yourself into happiness. And specifically, I think it ties back a little bit to the idea of prioritizing this happy mood above all else and feeling really good all the time. That might be, I think, part of where this, this toxic positivity culture comes from as well. So what's your personal definition of happiness? Because you said there were over 200. And as you were talking, I kept like thinking of all these like yoga terms like Santosha, which is contentment and like being mm-hmm. present and Everything you said had a yoga tie. So it was very interesting. So what is your personal definition of happiness? Oh, well, and it's, you know, it's so interesting. And I say this in in my book, but everything that I'm sharing is knowledge that's been around for a really long time. Every other culture has aligned upon very similar pathways to happiness. I think we in our Western culture have just gotten a little bit lost and I'm trying to bring that forward a little bit. But the definition of happiness that we have come up with as the new happy definition is using your gifts to serve the world. It's this integration of your authenticity and who you are with being of service to other people and offering what you have in order to make things better for them. In the process, not only do you benefit and you grow, but also you get to experience joy and fulfillment and daily happiness. 
Love it. So why do you think happiness as a state of being versus a mood is so out of reach for so many people? That's a great question. I think that I mean, a lot of it just stems from old happy, in my opinion, right? Because if you're told over and over again, for you to be happy, you have to go over here, you have to get that, you have to be this version of yourself, you have to get into a relationship, you have to have kids, you have to get on the treadmill, you have to get promoted, blah, 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 whatever it is, right, for for your unique experience, then you're always moving towards something and you're never content where you are. You're never able to sit back and say, what if I actually have enough right now? What if I am enough as I am right now? And if your definition of happiness is based upon something always being a little bit farther ahead of you, and once you get there, you'll be happy, then ultimately you always have to be in this perpetual state of doing and achieving and competing and acquiring and consuming. And that's why to me, it all stems from your definition. That's why it's so important that we inquire into what we believe about happiness and potentially correct it depending on what we think we need. But with your definition, the first thing that came to my mind was like, well, what about people with self-esteem disorders? Mm. Like people who don't think they have something to offer the world. Like Are they like doomed to never be happy? I I know. (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, I think the part of... There's some really interesting research about self-esteem and how the self-esteem movement has done a great deal of harm for many of us, uh, essentially building our self-esteem up based upon this objective set of characteristics is where a lot of this old happy definition comes from. And of course, we all are on our own journey of self-acceptance and self-compassion and building our self-esteem. But part of the core problem is, as you said, there are so many people who don't believe that they have something to share with the world. And I, I could not say this more passionately. It's completely untrue. Every single person has something that they can offer. It comes from their very being. It's not something that you have to even do. It's your existence as a human being. You are a gift in this world. And when you share yourself with the world, you actually increase your self-esteem. So people who are more generous, more compassionate, more giving are actually found to have more stable long-term self-esteem than people who are achieving, who get better grades, than people who are more likely to be promoted, all these objective measures of self-esteem that we look for. So true self-esteem is found in this sense of I'm enough exactly as I am. And that's where the language of sharing your gifts actually comes from to, to address this feeling that so many of us have that we're these, we have nothing to offer, which we desperately need what every person in this world has to offer. We, we need it to make our world better. And the first step is learning how to uncover that and then starting, as you said, to share it. So how, how are you helping people do that? And how are you helping others other than your amazing Instagram account (laughs) adopt the new happy philosophy? We have a bunch of different things that we do. So we have our Instagram page and the artwork. I have a weekly newsletter. We have a weekly podcast. I do a lot of work with corporations, helping them to shift how they're designing their work and supporting this opportunity for people to share their gifts with the world. So how do you actually design jobs and workplaces that provide that level of support? And then really, I've been working for the last nine months on finishing up my upcoming book, which has been the main focus. And then we have a whole whole bunch of other things in the pipeline in the future, but that's really what I've been working on so far. 
This is Jamie. You know, I was just thinking, Heidi, when you were talking about people who think they have nothing to offer the world. And, you know, so much of this, Stephanie, I learned in 12-step recovery, right? So I got Mm. sober 20 years ago. And when I came into that program, what you're saying right now, this was all news to me. Like when you are an addict or an alcoholic, you kind of stop your emotional development at whatever age you started that addiction at. So I was pretty stunted. And so when I went in and they explained to me, like, this is not a me program, it's a we program. And it's like, when I would be like, I would tell my sponsor, oh, but I'm, I'm not happy or I'm feeling this or I'm feeling that. She's like, go help someone else. Go help someone else. Go reach out your hand, reach out. Mm-hmm. And that was always the advice. And I learned because like if an addict coming in off the streets with not a dollar in their pocket and barely hanging on for dear life can be of service by just reaching out their hand and helping another addict, that you build up self-esteem by doing esteemable acts. And that's an esteemable act. And I realized that. And I built my self-esteem back up one day at a time. Literally, that's like the mantra of the program. By doing that and just being of service. And and that's why they always say like the sponsor-sponsee relationship. You know, the sponsee helps the sponsor just as much as the other way around. Because whenever we're able, whenever we have an opportunity to be of service, it only helps us. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I love that you talked about that there's research to back that up. I've just learned it anecdotally in maybe the hardest way possible, the school of hard knocks, right? So I know a lot of your approach is scientifically backed by kind of this academic research. Can you give us like, are there examples of like data points that really kind of support that? Because also as an accountability coach, I'm always telling people, sometimes you got to sacrifice the happiness (laughs) in the short term to get the long-term pride and, and satisfaction. So what does that look like? Thank you so much for sharing that. I think that AA and other 12-step programs are miracles, right? They offer so much and they deliver such... I'm so inspired by their teaching and and by your story. So thank you. I mean, the data is really interesting, especially when you look at health and longevity. So people who are more generous are actually just more likely to live longer. So some studies have found that they live up to seven years longer than people who are not more generous, who don't volunteer, who don't give back. They have lower inflammation in their bodies. They are more likely to say that their life is meaningful. They're more likely to say, hey, my relationship with my partner is better. They're more likely to say, I believe that I have a purpose on this world. Like These are all the things that we want in life, right? And the pathway is through giving. And when we give from that sense of authenticity, that's really, I think, one of the important pieces, right? Because to your story, your your sponsor was helping you because they had lived something and they had something to offer you from that experience. And that's a gift that they shared with you. And when you do that, you're you're not only able to grow at the same time as a person, but you're also able to connect and expand outward and create this sense of an ecosystem of people who are helping one another. And when we do that, when we're contributing to these greater communities of helpfulness and care and love and compassion, we're also contributing again to our health and to our well-being. There are tons and tons of studies that have measured the impacts of being a part of a caring community. And they all have found that they have these really huge contributors to our life satisfaction, our quality of life, our health, all of, again, all these things that we want. So to me, when I discovered this, I was like, this is the missing ingredient. This is what I've been looking for all of my life. And no one really told me about it. And it felt like this amazing surprise to discover this magical win-win that exists in the world. You're awesome. <laughs> so, I mean, we're talking a lot about how it's not about the me, it's about the we. Mm. And I think it can be so daunting for people to think about the collective because it seems like you have to do something so grand and yeah. so big to contribute. 
And it's not necessarily like volunteering at a soup kitchen or, or like these big acts of community and kindness. What are small ways? Like to me, sometimes totally. smiling at a cashier or you, like those little things, do they have an impact too? Yes, they have a huge impact. Okay, here is one of my favorite pieces of research I've ever found, which is that there are researchers who have done extensive studies on peace, peaceful societies around the world. And one of the most important factors that they found is that more peaceful societies simply have more kind reciprocal acts between their members. That means that people are smiling at each other. They're saying hello. They're picking up trash they saw on the street. They're bringing in their neighbor's garbage cans. They're holding the door for somebody. They're calling and checking in on somebody who they think might be lonely. These are the small acts that actually add up. And so whenever I think about this, I'm overwhelmed by the sense of possibility that we all have in all of our lives. There's so much going on, right? There's, there's many things that have to get done every day, but these acts of simple helping person to person, they add up to something as big and insurmountable feeling as peace of living and creating these happy communities. So every single act that you take in that small way is going to lead to something so much bigger, something that you might never even know. You might never even understand how far your kind act will go. But when you do it, you are actually contributing in this very, very meaningful way. The other research that I love about this is that if I witness someone, so Megan, if I saw you being kind to somebody, it actually makes me more likely to be kind to somebody else. So it creates this ripple effect. So every time we witness it, we're able to to give back in our own way. It's really hard when I look at this research to think that we're designed for anything other than care and compassion and contributing to one another. I love that. And I feel like you actually just answered our final segment question, but maybe we'll ask it formally anyway and make it a little more concise. What do you think, Megs? Our last segment is called Carmichael. So I make Megan say it because she says it so amazingly. It's, so and it's, it's an act of kindness towards me because it fills my heart with joy every time I, love I hear that. her say it. <laughs> um, but I'm a resident yogi, so I will explain that karma is the word for action. Mm. So we ask all of our amazing inspirational guests, you, what is one small action that our listeners could take for a short amount of time that would yield a large result? I love the question. I love the announcement, Megan. It's so great. Um, You know, I have been thinking lately about how many people are feeling really lonely. One of, you know, the biggest challenges that our society is facing. And the research has found that people who are lonely are not what we stereotypically think they are. You know, they're not people who have poor social skills. They're not people who even live alone necessarily, but they're People who are lonely tend to be going through really big life challenges that take a lot out of them. And so what happens is that they're so busy coping with those challenges that they don't have time to facilitate and engage in their relationships in the same way. But those people need their relationships more than anyone because it's what allows them to keep going and coping in their their difficulties. So my suggestion for a small act would be think about somebody in your life who's going through a big challenge right now. And just give them a call or send them a text. Let them know that you're thinking of them. And it can be as simple as sending them an article or a cute video or a meme on Instagram or anything like that. But just reach out to them and let them know that you're there. And you 
will be able to really make a difference in their day, especially if they're going through something really difficult. Love it. Best advice is sometimes the most simple, right? Yeah. We can't thank you enough for being here. This has been seriously, seriously awesome. And um, I'd love to help our listeners find you on the gram and subscribe to your newsletter and anything else you got cooking. So can you share where people can follow you? Yeah, of course. You can find us at thenewhappy.com or across social at newhappyco. And of course, you have a book coming out? Yeah, in about a year or so. Exciting. We'll all keep our eyes peeled for that. Thank you so much for being here with us today and making us all a little happier. Thank you so much for having me. It was such a joy to talk to all of you. Stephanie has left the chat. I feel happier. Does everyone else feel happier? I love her. I think she's brilliant. She's like the future of public psychology. I love her Instagram too. It's just so simple and it's not didactic. Like there's nothing worse than somebody like being patronizing, telling you how to be happy. I feel like it makes me want to like be angry on purpose, you know? (laughs) Well, I think also like the fact of the matter is like happiness is, is a proactive state of being, right? Like it's, it's being of service. It's, you don't just wake up happy. And then if you're not happy, you're like, well, shit, I'm not happy. It's like being happy is something you can take control of. And you can also do it by lifting the world up and making it a better place. And it might sound trait, by the way, that might, to a lot of people that might sound annoying, like an annoying answer. Like, oh, I have to go help someone else to make myself. Look, there is psychology and science and data behind it. So if you don't want to do it for altruistic reasons, do it for the data. Like the data is that you can help someone else. You make yourself happier. I like felt selfish doing community service or working at the soup kitchen or working at the nursing home because it was, I was purely self-motivated. I always felt so much better that I knew that I needed to give back to be able to give to myself. But I definitely had moments of like, maybe this is selfish because this is definitely helping me more than it's helping whoever. You know what? You showed up. That's all that matters. You You know, you showed up, you did the work. And you inspire other people to do the same by your positive reaction to that. I just love so much. I mean, Jamie, I've said this so many times that, you know, the yoga like yamas and yamas are the exact same as the 12 steps. And like all of these, you know, ancient and modern programs to better oneself or better the world, they all have the same pillars. I mean, I repeat all the time that everyone is enough exactly the way they are. The universe created them to be perfect. They don't need to try to be perfect. They are perfect. You know, all that stuff that I espouse every single day. I just loved hearing her say that because I feel like the thing that people cry about the most in any yoga class that I teach is when I start talking about how perfect they are, you know, and that they don't need any effort to be that way. And because people don't feel it in their bones, they don't. So the more that everyone can get out the message that people are enough, that there is something special, that just by being their unique, perfect self, they, you know, make the world a better place and that the world needs that special spark that is them, that is uniquely them, is it's just all such important stuff. So people aren't continually trying to be someone that they're not. And that's what makes people unhappy. I love that she says that. I just ended my um, TED talk last week with the, you know, the, the Greek philosopher Aristotle said that the essence of life is to connect and serve others. We are literally put here to connect and help each other and live a life of good. And so oftentimes when people come to me and they're like, oh, I don't want to ask, you know, my partner for help or anyone in my life for help because I don't want to be a bother. It's like, 
you're literally robbing that person of an opportunity to show up and be of service and feel good about themselves and feel like a hero. We are put here to all help each other. And it's okay that Megan, that you feel good and you feel better by helping other people like you're supposed to. And I think it just shows that you're like an extra good person that you even question that. But I think, you know, everyone can go out and and do good and be of service also for the benefit of it helping themselves. And that's just the human condition. Yeah, but also that it doesn't have to be so big is what she said. Sorry, Megs, didn't mean to yeah, cut you off. Well, it was funny because Pat and I were having this conversation this morning too of like, how do we have our kids be of service? Like, what do we do to show them that they need to be of service to others and be more involved in the community, et cetera? And we were looking for ways to make that happen. But I think it's also like, it's also important just that there's of service to others by just being kind to someone. Like if someone is looking sad, you know, you ask how they're doing. If like, that's a small thing that a child of any age, really, you know, in school could take. I mean, it's important to do the bigger things too, but like, it's a nice way to start to start turning the brain. Our kindness rocks program, where we just hide the the rocks with positive messages and images all over town is, you know, when I think about it, that is one of the ways that I guess my kids are of service because it is Mm -hmm. just a happy maker. Totally. And let me tell you something. We have one of those in my community. And whenever my kids find one of those rocks, they freak out and they're like, oh my gosh, somebody left this for me. I want to do something kind for somebody else. So think about the ripple effect, Megan, that your rocks have probably had on other humans who have found those rocks. It's oh, big. This was a feel good show. It's big stuff. <laughs> big stuff. Totally I hope you all job. feel good at home too. We feel good that you joined us. Thank you for joining us. Hey, don't forget to subscribe to our show wherever podcasts can be consumed. And don't forget to follow us on the gram at Off the Gram Podcast. We'll see you next time. Yay.